Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John, and it's another John Thoughts. I'm alone today. Glad to be here. Uh, if you're familiar with these, these are normally when one of the two, me or my dad, is away. The other will do just kind of a solo, shorter uh, thing about what's been going on in our lives or things we've been chewing on. And uh, you got me this time. So, lucky or unlucky, you won't have to hear any jokes, I guess. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> that might be a plus. Um, but uh, yeah, welcome. So as always, if you're a regular listener, these are kind of soft. So if you, you know, don't have time for this or or if I wear you out a little bit, you can just take a breather till next week. We'll see you next week for a, uh, hopefully a normal episode for the two of us. I figured we just, me and my dad have talked about this uh, group that we've been doing, this like discipleship study group and we've been reading in the past eight weeks this workbook by Maxie Dunham called uh oh my gosh what is it called uh, I only ever just in my notes I refer to it as saints it's like uh reflections from the saints oh my goodness this is terrible I'll put it in the uh in the description if I can find it and if you've been listening we've said the name of it before anyways and it is also out of print so it doesn't really anyway reading this uh workbook and it's been pretty phenomenal the big big change for me is I don't do a lot of extra biblical faith reading. All my reading is like fiction or, um, or if it's having to do with like my faith, which ideally most of it does, it's uh, scripture. And so I haven't done a lot of like, you know, theological, non-biblical reading. So this was, uh, you know, kind of new for me to read a lot of the, not just early church, you know, a lot of, most people, if they're talking about post-biblical you know, theological writing, a lot of them is like Augustine. It's like long, still a long time ago, but a lot of these were like, you know, through the last couple, like 500, 600 years. So still like a while, but, um, anyway, guys I'd never even heard of and a lot of their wisdom. So, uh, it's pretty cool. I figured I would just go over some of the things, my, my big takeaways from those books, as well as a uh, one other from another book I'm reading, uh, by C.S. Lewis. Before that, the only kind of show and tell I've got for you, I figured I would, uh, or story or whatever, I didn't think I would do this at all, but last night we were driving and, uh, I saw, I think, I'm sure there's a name for it, but it's basically like every season's got one big moon. I don't know the science of it, but like, seriously, like the moon is just larger and sometimes discolored. And, and so last night we're driving, I didn't even know it was coming. And, uh, and over these hills, we're going past Tacoma right now. I'm, I'm recording. I'm talking to you from, uh, Snohomish where my in-laws live and I'm staying up there. And so we're driving up here last night, and uh, where I-5 goes, um, basically before exit 154 or thereabouts, before like the SeaTac 405 exit, uh, you can see over, you know, uh, over the SeaTac South Sound, South Center, or not South Sound, excuse me, yeah, South Center uh, area. And there's hills in the back, and you can see, if, if, if you've driven there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can see forever. And there's those uh, hills in the back, which I'm pretty sure are part of the Cascades, actually, out to the to the east, and there's this orange moon. It looks like a sunrise almost. Bright orange, like amber orange, and huge. And it's got these like low clouds in front of it with like some mist in front of it, so it's like glowing. It looked seriously incredible. Like it looked so nuts. We're driving and there's not really a great good place to pull off. And I'm kidding myself if I thought I could have taken a picture with my, you know, crummy iPhone or whatever, it wouldn't have done justice. 
but I hope any of you guys, you know, hopefully you were able to see it, and if not, you can look it up, but it was seriously crazy, and I saw it between, you know, on the Cascade Range, it was between, like, these two peaks, so it was in, like, a little valley, it was super cool, I just figured I'd, I would, uh, gush on that a little bit, I love the moon, Lindsay's always getting on to me, because I'm always looking up at it, um, and not in, like, an astrological or, like, science kind of way, I don't know, I just, it's just pretty, I like it, maybe it's because here we don't get to see it all that often when it's cloudy, anyway, so that was cool. I didn't expect that at all. It was a nice treat. And it was after I had just, I had fallen asleep in the car because Lindsay was driving. And I wake up and it's just bam, just like, I don't know, crazy. It was cool. So, Reflections on the Saints. Is that what it's called? I think it's called Reflections on the Saints. I'm going to call it that. And um, um, my big, so he does, Maxi Donham's the author. He breaks it down week by week. And these are things that he, in his study of the saints, uh, and not just the Catholic, you know, the Catholic recognized saints. He's, he's, uh, what is it? Um, he's some reformed or, you know, like after the reformation, like the first, the Lutheran reformation, he's one of those denominations. So he's not Catholic. So his version of the saints is you know, like, he cites like Martin Luther as one of the saints. So he just means like, uh, devoted, famous, impactful people of the faith. And he does, you know, he also quotes Catholic saints sometimes, but that's, I'm just, just saying that's not his like, you know. He doesn't have that narrow scope of it. So basically these eight things are the things that he observed uh, as common between all of the saints that he has studied. And so he put those eight things into this book and each week focuses on one. And uh, one of them, they kind of build on each other. So it's not all that important where this one came from, but they would be things like they found contentment regardless of circumstance or their their sole mission was was love and service to others or things like that. So the big one for me, and we've referenced this a few times, is uh, the reality or the perspective of kissing your crosses is how it's put in the book, and uh, and that's you know a little a little gooey, you know. So <laughs> if you don't like that wordage, you can at least hopefully appreciate the what it means. But basically, the well for me, the the big takeaway is redefining what a cross is. So in scripture, whenever it's talking about suffering in the New Testament, all these New Testament letters talking about suffering and suffering being the discipline of God and, you know, what father doesn't discipline his child and it produces fruits in our lives, suffering, maturity. And so I always had this in the context of like martyrdom or suffering for the faith or uh, that a cross is just very general, that a cross is like in general, you are dead to yourself. That's what like a cross is. And so this chapter in the book about kissing your crosses is uh for me redefining the cross as far as just any suffering you do in life and the reason it originally seemed off to me is because everybody suffers outside and inside the faith you know everybody does it so how can like how is it a cross to me as a christ follower if like i don't know like uh i might not be able to put food on the table for for like a week right that's a cross and people outside of the faith have to deal with that too. But the reason it's a cross is because you bear it in service to Christ. So you don't just survive it on your own grit or you're not just like, you're not just dealing with it. You're bearing it as like worship. So any kind of suffering could be a cross, you know? And so the idea of kissing them is that you don't just grit your teeth and even worshipfully to God. You don't just say, I will survive this for God. You actually welcome it and value the cross and your individual ones. So this goes, you know, this goes all the way down to um, relationship problems or problems you're having with your kid, um, where you can, instead of 
feeling, um, even if you weren't going to be like, God, why are you doing this to me? Like not have that kind of victim attitude, but instead of viewing them as obstacles, you view them as opportunities to worship. So a big thing for, uh, for me, I don't know if I said this quote on here either, but, um, but this quote speaks to, to kind of a challenge that I've had where it's, it was also in this book workbook and it says, uh, you know, often in doing the will of God, there's actually, there's not much to do. There's not much to do in doing the will of God. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of silence and a lot of patience. And this is big for me because, you know, there's my, my inclination, the human inclination to earn and to, to earn love, to earn favor, to, you know, saving private Ryan, you know, earn this and that whole, that whole thing. So, uh, this cross idea, the, say you have like, you suffer from like recurring physical pain. You have like a, um, some kind of injury or some kind of pain, the pain, which is obviously horrible and makes your life very difficult is opportunity to worship an opportunity to praise an opportunity to, to draw nearer to God and to, uh, to be more like Jesus, you know? So you bear that pain well, with grace and you're loving with people and you're not short and you rely on God that you use that to bring you closer to God, to use him as your only, you know, your only resource, really, really relying on him. This is, this is kissing a cross. This is, um, worshiping as a lifestyle. And, uh, and this is huge for me. So that's the first one. The second is also a lot like it. And, uh, hold on. I have a quote from this in my journal. The people in the group can tell you that, uh, my handwriting is so bad that I often cannot read it myself. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'll read this and I'm going to have lots of pauses, but I can edit those out. Uh, so this is from a guy uh, named De Cassade, uh French, probably. I forget his first name, but he has a lot of incredible quotes in this book. And this is, uh, well, I'll just read it first and we can talk about it. So he says, and this is in a letter to a friend of his. Before all things, do not dream of making any more efforts, either in prayer or in anything else, trying to be more recollected than God wishes you to be. Be satisfied to know that this state of dissipation displeases you, and that you have a great desire to be recollected, but only when it pleases God, and as much as it pleases Him, neither more or less. This is crazy to me. This is so crazy. This is like, you know, if I can hold on to this, I feel like it can be really big, because everyone can um, sympathize with this, especially if you've been in the church a while, you know, you read these for me, the, I'll speak for myself. The uh, nagging is I read about Paul and, uh, and I have, I have a, a vague memory of coming home from a church service on a Wednesday night church service. I'm like, I've got to be like seven or eight, you know, and doing the, doing the prayer, the, you know, the, the altar call prayer in my room after coming home that night, like young, young, that's as good as it gets as far as like a conversion experience for me, (laughs) which is, has a lot of great things about it and a lot of frustrating things about it. And one of these is I don't have before and after I don't have, you know, um, BC, AD John, you know, so Paul does, he's got before Christ, Paul and he, or Saul, and then he has, uh, an Odomini Paul, not literally, but you know what I mean? Like at, post encountering Jesus. So, um, my character flaws, you know, which I think I'm aware of to an extent, uh, no one is a hundred percent, obviously, uh, are very frustrating to me. 
And a lot of that is because it's like, man, I'm, I've been saved quote unquote forever. <laughs> and, and the big part of this is actually, you know, this disruption I've had recently as far as, uh, standard of living requirements or, um, moral requirements for the faith, which I didn't even fully understand until a year ago or a year and a half ago. And it's not, again, I've talked about this already. I won't get too deep into it, but so when I, so these faults of mine are crises, you know, they are, uh, why isn't this going away? So, so this, you know, decasad here, do not make any effort to be more recollected, more perfect, more uh, whole, more clean before God than you are right now. This is ultimate submission to the will of God that I am. If I'm in my heart with Jesus and I feel him there and I, and I see him in my alone time and I'm talking to him and I have a relationship, uh, the rest is him. The rest is his, his job, you know, is his transformation is his transforming me over time. So this isn't, uh, this isn't, if you have a recurring sin, don't make efforts to cut it out. That's not what this is, but don't, if you are not perfect, which is everybody, do not make extraneous efforts to be more recollected than you are before God and submit yourself. Well, and and the other part of this quote, be satisfied that it displeases you. Be satisfied with yourself that your non-recollection, your diffusion displeases you and that you would be very pleased to be more recollected and then leave the rest to God. This is so so huge. And again, so this is about the will of God. This is, um, I have, I trust in his grace. I have hope in the glory of God. I have hope in my final salvation when we, when I'll leave all of these, uh, terribly frustrating faults behind. And I take peace in this moment. I sit in this moment and I don't beat my flesh up. I don't judge myself. Like Paul says, I just wait and I rest with Jesus and I trust his spirit to work in me gradually according to his will. And this is, for me, is huge. I hope I haven't butchered the concept too much for you guys. Okay, so the last thing, those are the two, two of the big ones from the workbook. There's, it's super, super rich. I, uh, I really re- enjoyed it. So there's, there's more in there that really spoke to me, but those are the big ones. And uh, recently, I've been reading Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, which is the last book he wrote before he died. Uh, it is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche Greek myth. And so there is, I'll try not to spoil it for you, even though it is early in the book. It's the, it's the conceit of the book. So it's something you would learn, you know, reading the back of it. But uh, there's two characters. The narrator uh, is a uh, is older uh, in this relationship. She's still young, but older than her sister. And she is uh, salty and she's writing this book as a letter against the gods. And she has this younger half-sister who is uh, perfect, who is like like just a beautiful goddess. And not in a way that's like, you know, like she doesn't hate, she loves her sister, the narrator. And, uh, and her sister is being basically in a ritual, she's going to, to die. It, it's, it's, she's Jesus in this kind of metaphor. So there's this, the ritual, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of the story, but basically in the lore of this religion that they have they tie a when they when the gods are mad they tie a person to a tree up on a mountain and a brute comes and devours slash marries them and the brute is you know all is both bride and devourer or husband and devourer it's it's 
there's many things that seem like they can't all be the same at once. And so the narrator of the book obviously uh, hates this and thinks it's all baloney. But the child, the perfect child who's going to be tied to this tree and devoured slash wed, can't wait. And for uh, a lot of reasons, because she, you know, it's up on this gray mountain and the gray mountain is where she's wanting to go over her life. Again, I said I wasn't going to get deep in the story. I'm already deep in the story, <laughs> but you needed the context for this idea. So uh, Psyche, the, the younger one, the, the girl being sent up, she talks about, about, about death and that marriage is a death in a way. Having kids is a death in a way. Growing up is a death. These are deaths of, of former selves of yours. And so this is just the moving up. This is a same, similar kind of death. But really the idea of devouring and uh, being with God. And so for me, this struck me as being kind of similar to our ideas of communion. In uh, in John, you know, Jesus, well, and through the Gospels, but specifically in John, uh, Jesus makes a very big deal about you eating him. Like <laughs> he has huge crowds at this point. And he says, uh, he says, I am the bread of life. You have to eat me. And they say, what? And he says, yup, you got to eat me. And, and you know, he scares off a lot of people. He doesn't, you know, uh, dress this up. And it's very interesting, you know, calling himself the bread. And to me, this is that full one I was talking about earlier about fully relying on God, about him being your bread, that if I don't eat, if I don't have Jesus every day, I will die. This is this kind of consum well consummation has a different word, but in the same you know probably the same root word, but consuming Jesus and so that he's in you that's the other thing Jesus is in you and you eat him it's kind of like a very it's a very direct image, and we have to be in Jesus also so I'll read you now this uh this what I wrote in my notes after reading till we have faces and having this kind of idea so I wrote. The devouring and marriage are not different. We eat the bread of the body of Christ and he is in us. We subsist off of him. We are to be in him also or else we will die. How does this happen? We must be consumed as well. There must be an exchange of flesh. Though grace abounds, this is the new covenant. So we talk about being fully gods, you know. I think an image of this is... We must be consumed by God. And this is super weird. Just bear with me. But this to me is, is, is very, very interesting. We, this is because the covenant is equal parts. And so the new covenant is always tricky because it's, we have so much grace. So it's, if we can't be perfect and Christ is perfect, then what is, you know, this is back to my recurring dilemma. What is the expectation of us in the new covenant? The old covenant was simpler, not easier, but simpler and easier in some ways because it's a covenant of actions and not of the heart. So it's, if we fail in the covenant, we do the sacrifice to maintain our level of the covenant. And we are still, you know, again, in practice or in idea, not in reality, we are even with God. We've held up our end of the bargain with sacrifices to maintain the covenant. So the new covenant, there's so much grace there. Then what do we have to do? It is equal exchange of flesh. We get the flesh of Christ, a huge gift. And we consume it, and he's in us, and he's our bread, and he gives us life. Then what do we do as part of our end of the covenant? We submit to be consumed by God. We give our whole lives to be in Christ, and we and we live there, and that's our whole deal. So then we fall, right? We do a sin. We, we fail terribly. 
is that a breach of the covenant? Not necessarily, because we have grace and your whole life is still in Christ. You're still making yourself day by day, giving yourself over and continuously, you know, not just that big conversion moment, continuously day after day, submitting yourself to be in Christ. You know, you have to eat Christ. You have to eat the bread of him every day to live. And in the same way, you submit to him every day as part of the covenant. This, I really hope I'm not weirding you out because this to me is very powerful imagery. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm always careful with these because that imagery does not appear in scripture. Christ doesn't say, and other New Testament writers say that you must be eaten by God. But so, so to me, this is just imagery. This is just analogy uh, for, to, to picture it. But the idea of, of being fully God and being in him are all biblical. It reminds me of a quote of T.S. Eliot. I've said a few times, but uh, the gist of it, you have a choice between two fires and uh, you're either uh, consumed by one or consumed by the other. It's, you know, it just is what it is. So you're consumed by death and human desires and eventually, you know, hellfire, or you're consumed by the fire of the spirit, the fire of God, and, and you're purified. So you're, you're, uh, cons- again, that word consume, you're, you're consumed either way. And it could be, that could be dark, but it's really a miracle that we have that option anyways, that we have that, the grace to, to choose. And now this is truly a John thoughts because now I have truly rambled. So <laughs> I hope any of this was helpful to any of you guys. I, it helps having my dad here because he can, you know, draw these ideas out of me. A lot of times I like assume context for you guys cause I'm just in my own head. And then it's like, oh yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't explain that well enough to somebody who has no idea what I'm talking about. So questions would be helpful. So although the episode will be recorded and shipped and you'll be listening to it, if you have questions about this or, uh, or anything else, please let us know. You can reach us at info at jimandjohn.com. That's our uh, email address, no H in the John. Or you can comment on our weekly Instagram post down in the comments or DM us there on our uh, account, which is Jim and John. And yeah, very, very grateful for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will be back, both of us, doing a full-on, full-on episode. Hope to see you then. Talk to you soon.